that's going to cost you a rib. Yeah, I just got my rib broken, but I'm good. I keep a spare in my utility belt. following is an in-depth story analysis and retrospective. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. Crisis on Two Earths is the seventh of the original DC direct-to-video animated movies that started in 2007 with Superman Doomsday. I reviewed that movie twice, but there are still a few pre-New 52-inspired continuity movies that I haven't tackled yet, including this one. I've even reviewed a show that was included as a special feature on the Blu-ray release for this movie, the Justin Hartley Aquaman pilot, but not this one, and it's already 10 years old. I wasn't avoiding it, really, I just kind of forgot about it. I wasn't impressed with it initially, and now that I'm finally giving it a second watch, I was definitely a little too hard on it. It's better than I gave it credit for, and I chalk a lot of that up to my limited knowledge of DC Comics history at the time. There's still plenty I don't know, but I've learned a lot in 10 years. I think it annoyed me that this movie would truncate Crisis on Infinite Earths into an 85-minute movie, and to simplify it would only explore two Earths, but still tell a story where the whole multiverse is at stake. I thought that was lame, but I didn't realize that this isn't based at all on Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's an original story, loosely based on an old Justice League tale from the 60s called Crisis on Earth 3 and Grant Morrison's Earth 2 graphic novel from the year 2000, where Morrison updated those characters and popularized them again as Morrison tends to do. This movie wasn't about making a compromised, slimmed-down version of Wolfman and Perez's Crisis, although I imagine the studio hoped that name would help sell copies. But in my defense, that's exactly what this team did with Death of Superman in Superman Doomsday, turning the four Supermen from Reign of the Supermen into just one clone, and cutting out most of what made that story memorable. I must have struggled to appreciate the merits of what's here because of that, even though it is, leaps and bounds, a tighter, more creative, and more thoughtful story than Doomsday was. I also didn't realize at the time that there were multiple crises before the big one in 85. There was a crisis on Earth-1, one between Earth-1 and 2, one on Earth-3, one on Earth-X, which is what the Arrowverse crossover of the same name is based on, on and on, collected in a trade series called Crisis on Multiple multiple Earths. So it made perfect sense to do a smaller crisis like this in the 85-minute movie format, as it would have been ludicrous to try fitting the convoluted and brain-splitting Crisis on Infinite Earths into so little real estate. I must have assumed the good Lex Luthor was the only element this film retained from the original Crisis, and everything else was fabricated or borrowed from unrelated stories. But again, I wasn't aware that there was a good Lex involved in a story about an evil Justice League for another universe. It might have been neat to see an ambitious attempt at adapting the 85 Crisis as a sequel to this movie after its establishment of the multiverse, but it would have had to be at least two movies, and years before that was attempted to rousing success with The Dark Knight Returns. 
or as a TV animated miniseries, if such a thing could even be greenlit back then. It seems more in the realm of possibility now with the DC Universe streaming service, and I'd really appreciate that treatment, considering how disappointing and poorly executed most of the Arrowverse crisis was. But the real reason this was made is because there was a script lying around for a scrapped DCAU feature that would have bridged the gap between the Justice League series and Justice League Unlimited. Bruce Timm's team decided to dust that off and retool it as its own thing, which became the start of its own universe, but only got two movies. Justice League Doom is supposed to be a sequel to this, although I doubt if a lot of people noticed. These early movies were awkward that way, sometimes being standalone features when the stories they were adapting felt more natural in a pre-established world, like Superman Doomsday, and a couple of sequels where the preceding movie hardly had any bearing on it, like Superman Batman Apocalypse after Public Enemies. Yes, most people who would think to watch this already know the main superheroes here and they're presented as traditional, classic versions. But it's still odd to introduce a Justice League in a movie with mirror universe versions of these characters. It wasn't retooled enough. It watches like the script was rewritten in an afternoon, and what we're watching is essentially exactly what that DCAU movie would have been, except with new character models, and pretty good ones, I should add. Hal Jordan instead of Jon Stewart, I guess because that's the version in the one Green Lantern movie they've made so far, which I also haven't gotten around to reviewing yet, and all the references to the TV show, of course, cut out. But I didn't need Wikipedia to tell me this used to bridge the gap between the two Justice League shows. It's about the Justice League being spread too thin, needing help to take care of big threats, and at the end, auxiliary members are added, and characters who show up in Unlimited, like Black Canary and Aquaman. Martian Manhunter has a love story, but can't be with Rose, the girl he falls in love with from another Earth, because he's pledged himself to saving our Justice League's Earth. This being a standalone movie, it just as well could have gone the other way. After Wonder Woman implores him to follow his heart, he could have said, hey, we've got an easy device to go back and forth between dimensions, right? If something happens, call me, and I'll be right there. But instead, it plays like he can't do that, because he's a main character in a TV show. Except he's not, because that's not in that universe anymore. It's a better movie once I realized it was originally supposed to be in the DCAU, though, and it really should have just stayed that way. Bruce Timm apparently said as late as 2008 it could still come out, so why not just release it as the last DC Animated Universe project, a lost story that connects those two shows. I imagine it would have sold just as well or better. It had been a few years since Unlimited ended. Old fans would have been jazzed for one last hurrah. The script was good enough and didn't feel superfluous like the DCAU continuity movie that came out in 2018, Justice League vs. The Fatal Five, which was a Legion of Superheroes thing that has the opposite problem of this. It is in the DCAU, and it kind of makes no difference that we're looking at those versions of these characters. And, of course, we won't even talk about the pseudo-return to the DCAU with Batman and Harley Quinn. <sighs> so it's awkward, because I feel like I'm watching a slightly different aesthetic, but sort of in that universe, except with different voices. It should have been either a send-off for the animated universe, or the story should have been more dramatically altered. And despite the nihilism and President Slade Wilson's questionable domestic policy kids just might not understand, nothing about the story screams adult, not for children. But there are a couple of elements here and there shoehorned in to force a PG-13 rating, like some unnecessary violence, 
I mean, does the jester really need to be impaled at the beginning? An awkward, kind of pointless, naked Lex scene after he's been strip-surged. The title is also kind of inaccurate. I'm not sure why it's not just called Crisis on Earth whatever, rather than Two Earths. Here's the story's premise in a nutshell. Good guy Lex from another universe, who sounds more like Superman than Superman, recruits our Justice League to stop an evil Justice League, the crime syndicate, from taking over his Earth. And while Ultraman, the Superman stand-in, is working on his takeover plot, Owlman, evil Batman, is working on an even more sinister plan, to use the device Ultraman thinks he's building to conquer the world to actually destroy the multiverse, because he's the ultimate nihilist and thinks it's the only choice anyone can make that actually makes a difference. Okay, so it's a crisis on one Earth. Our Earth isn't in danger, really. Ultraman and his cronies aren't ambitious enough to try to control our Earth, too. At no point does anyone say, today the world, tomorrow the multiverse. And then, at the end, it's a crisis on all the Earths because Owlman threatens to destroy them all. It is not, in any way, a crisis on two Earths. Unless it's referring to Earth Prime at the end. I also think it watches a little like a Justice League two-parter. Of course, it reminds me of the Justice Lords episode of Justice League with another evil Justice League from another dimension who were themselves loosely based on the crime syndicate. But it also feels that way structurally. If this were a two-part episode, I imagine the first one would see the Justice League trying to systematically take down the syndicate in the other universe, and then the second episode would introduce Owlman's plot to destroy everything. That revelation comes 36 minutes into the movie and adds a whole other thematic notion to the story that wasn't there from the beginning. It's about two totally different notions. It's a crisis of two themes. Does might make right and does anything we do matter? Those are ideas that can go together, certainly. They both question the notion of right and wrong. If I'm powerful enough to make anyone do what I want, don't I get to make the rules? Don't I get to decide what right and wrong are? That's how Ultraman and Superwoman see the world. They cast heroes like Lex and the Jester as villains because they call the shots. They get to decide who the good guys and bad guys are. By the same token, if nothing we do matters because on some other Earth, every decision we don't choose to make is made by another version of us, then again, right and wrong seem arbitrary. Those ideas aren't really married together by the end, as definitely as I'd like, and again, Owlman's philosophy comes so late, I'm blindsided by how original and atypical it is. After the pretty standard, power is fleeting and there's always a bigger fish messages we've gotten until then. Once that idea is introduced, I'm so intrigued by it, and so shocked that suddenly we're dealing with the existential implications of the existence of different dimensions, just not as interested anymore in Slade Wilson's ethical dilemma of letting the syndicate run amok under the pretense of America still being a free country in order to save lives. The multiverse isn't just a device here to see weird versions of characters we know, but it colors how a character sees the world, and it's a thematic idea in its own right, which is fascinating and the last thing I'd expect from one of these movies. I'll talk about that toward the end. Each Justice League member gets, if not a character arc, at least something cool to do. Except for Green Lantern. Batman and Superman have an argument about manpower. Superman wants to help fight another dimension's battle for them, even though, as Batman says, they don't have the resources to handle even their own battles. Which leads, at the end, to an expansion of the League. I guess if you have five more members, that gives you what you need to save other dimensions and your own. 
It's a fine conflict, I suppose, but another story element that seems a lot more natural in an ongoing series than a standalone film. As I mentioned earlier, Martian Manhunter has a romance that's cut short by his sense of duty, and although it's a believable and romantic enough subplot, I would have either cut it completely, because it just doesn't have enough to do with the main ideas of the story, or I would let John be happy at the end, which would have suggested a midpoint between Superman's extreme altruism, taking huge personal risk and helping whoever needs it, even if you're in no position to do so, and Ultraman's extreme selfishness, doing whatever you want for your own sake, backed by nothing but your own physical strength. When Wonder Woman says this is what we fight for, if John doesn't stay with Rose, it misses a huge opportunity to use him to refute Owlman's claim that nothing matters. For Wonder Woman, personal happiness matters, whether other versions of you are happy or not, and what the League fights for is that right for everyone. Flash learns that maybe Batman actually cares what happens to him when he lies about Barry not being fast enough to open the dimensional portal to save him from a rapid aging death, which is more about Batman's compassion and where he draws moral lines than it is about Barry himself, and it feels like another story point in a grander narrative. That's a good development in what was essentially a retroactive season ender. Wonder Woman finally gets her invisible jet, yet another thing that's a better payoff in an ongoing series than a standalone film. And like I said, Green Lantern is just there. Mostly just to make constructs to hit things and ferry the team in space. Perhaps whatever the original script had for Jon Stewart to do didn't translate well to Hal Jordan and they just didn't replace it with anything. Of course, the primary goal of these things is thrilling action. These movies still, like the cartoon shows, have that Fleischer Superman mentality to some degree. I don't mean to say there aren't profound ideas and emotional character arcs in several of the DCAU stories, and those shows set a high bar for storytelling in kids' television. But the adventure and the fights are what the kids came for initially, and then they stayed for the good stories. And now the same team is enticing a lot of those same kids with the same thing, but now as adults. Sometimes there's a great balance of action and drama, or action and the exploration of an interesting idea, like in New Frontier and the animated Wonder Woman film. And sometimes the fights eclipse the narrative, which is an issue here. I think directors Sam Liu and Lauren Montgomery and writer Dwayne McDuffie pulled out all the stops here, and it's the most impactful, dynamic action of all the home video movies up to this point. It's gotta be in the top three overall for action of the pre-Flashpoint movies. When characters get hit, I feel it. And there's so much variety of locations and kinds of fight sequences. No opportunity is wasted in seeing our heroes fight their doppelgangers. It feels like Batman is going up against himself when he fights Owlman. And the way Owlman's cape billows as he drops from a high place is classic Batman stuff. There are all these complex battles with so many different characters, and nobody's ever lost in the shuffle. The movie keeps surprising me with mirror character choices, like brutish Jimmy Olsen, who can fly for some reason and still dresses like a 1940s photographer kid, complete with his signal watch, and not one, but two black canaries who get to use their canary cries in creative ways. We get to see Martian Manhunter as a giant sea serpent. I'm not sure why there's not a mirror Aquaman during that sequence, but whatever. Batman fights a bunch of super-powered characters in a new mech suit that is in no way inspired by Dark Knight Returns, which is impressive. When the Justice League shows up in the Syndicate's universe, there's a long, non-stop fight inside their headquarters and then into the sky that feels like the culmination of years and years of storyboarding. It's big screen-worthy and just breathtaking. But... 
you've only got 85 minutes, and some pretty heavy ideas that aren't explored as much as they could be if there wasn't so much fisticuffs. It feels like a real event. That fight in the sky with the plane that will later become Wonder Woman's invisible jet is epic. It's technically impressive, and it's wonderfully memorable, but for the sake of the story, it goes on way too long especially considering the sheer number of other fights in the movie. And if it weren't for the Owlman argument, I probably wouldn't complain as much about that. There's probably enough done with the crime syndicate story, at least thematically. I'd like to know more about those characters, to be sure. We don't have backgrounds for anybody, so Ultraman, Superwoman, Johnny Quick, and their made men all just come off like doppelgangers who are thuggish, power-hungry despots because this is opposite world and that's a 180 from our heroes. This isn't injustice. It's not a what-if so much as an Elseworlds. It isn't a world that was a lot like ours, but then there was some catalyst, like Superman being tricked into killing Lois Lane, that led to everything spinning out of control and going in a totally different direction. It's just a different world from ours, but with similarities. Even still, Ultraman doesn't have to be a generic Italian mob boss type. Superwoman doesn't have to be a sadist for no reason. Batman says surely Owlman was a good man once suggesting that these characters are supposed to be sympathetic, supposed to have naturally and maybe tragically become these self-proclaimed gods they are, and we would understand what led them down that path if only it was revealed to us. The point is made that good men standing by and doing nothing makes it easy for evil to thrive, but that it's not a simple choice without that character development. It does the job, but it's not as compelling as it could be if these characters were more three-dimensional. I do like the mature way President Slade Wilson's dilemma is handled, and I love the choice as Slade for president. Kind of interesting that the greatest hero on this world is Lex Luthor, and I'm surprised there's never a direct character parallel made between them, considering how much this team has liked doing President Lex stories in the past. Lex is a self-made man with a genius intellect who maybe sees his intelligence as a superpower that he has a responsibility to use for the greater good, although that's just speculation. We don't explore his motivations beyond he's essentially Superman in this world where the real Superman is a tyrant. I like that he's still a little dubious, like when he hides the quantum trigger on the Justice League satellite and doesn't tell anyone about it, but he always has a noble reason for his deception. I'm not sure I would totally trust the interdimensional counterparts of people who are always trying to kill me either, no matter how altruistic they might seem. And this isn't discussed either, but I like the idea that Lex becomes a superhero on a world where he's proven right, that the supremely powerful alien from another planet really doesn't have our best interests at heart, and it's up to him to save the world. What would Lex be like in a world where he was really needed and he didn't have that jealousy? Anyway, by contrast, Slade is a soldier who, as Martian Manhunter says, sees human life is more precious than other people because he's seen it destroyed firsthand, and that makes it harder for him to sacrifice it, even if it may seem necessary. Lex continues to oppose the Syndicate, no matter the cost. He's lost his entire Justice League in the effort to take them down, while Slade compromises and allows them to do whatever they want, trying to find a balance that will keep the American people as safe as he can, and pointing nukes at the Syndicate, which keeps them from taking over completely. Superman and Rose's argument, Rose being Slade's daughter, is that Slade is condoning their actions and setting the precedent that might indeed does make right and that he should do the right thing, not the safe thing. In the short term, he might save lives, but in the long term, he's setting a horrible example. That it's the rule of fear that really wins out rather than the rule of law. 
Because this is a Justice League story, Rose is proven correct at the end, that right makes might, rather than the other way around. Slade finally stands up to the Syndicate with the League's help after Ultraman threatens his daughter. Bad move, dude. Seriously. Once Slade stops making choices through fear, he's able to be smart about it and remember that the Syndicate aren't gods. They have weaknesses, and all he has to do is be smart about it. So once Batman stops Owlman's plot on Earth Prime, he and the Marines, and I love the Golden Age image of the President showing up himself in a one-man tank, can take Ultraman and his cronies in on the moon under threat of nuclear weapons, since they don't have to bomb their own populace to finally stop them. That's a clever solution, and I'm impressed McDuffie thought of a way to believably take them down that didn't resort to a contrived superweapon or weakness for an easy wrap-up. The problem with the way Ultraman and the rest of the Syndicate look at the world is that there's always someone stronger. So you might be on top of the mountain today, but if might makes right, you could be wrong tomorrow. It's a classic optimistic ending. It's a story that plays around with modern superhero deconstruction in a cynical world. People are more likely to do self-serving things than noble things with superpowers, and whoever has the power gets to make the rules. But even though Slade has to make hard choices, dealing with people who won't be charged with crimes and can't be prosecuted, at the end of the day, he and our heroes win because he finally makes the right move. And yes, it involves some strategy, but he does win as much because he's right as he does because he's smart. Again, right makes might. It's still a morality play and a fantasy where good always prevails over evil. In the real world, Superman isn't going to show up to make that trolley problem sort of decision an easier one to make. Do you stop the immediate crimes, or do you let the syndicate rob and hurt and kill a few people to save everyone else? The movie seems to be on the side of virtue ethics rather than ends-based ethics. You do what's right in the moment because it's right, damn the consequences. But that's a harder call in the real world because villains never operate on the moon. You know, in this universe, a space force would actually make some sense. The Justice League manpower issue is more contrived than the way the Syndicate is dispatched of on the moon, though. Superman and his team should never have been able to get that far in the first place for the reason Batman lines out at the beginning. And because his plan, as Lex says when they first start trying to systematically take down the Syndicate, is insane. They've got this small team and Lex versus all five Syndicate families with tons of auxiliary evil hero analogs under them, including the Archer, the Green Arrow stand-in, Model Citizen, the Black Canary stand-in, Black Power, the Black Lightning stand-in, even Lobo. And I should mention, even though I wouldn't want this enforced dialogue, there's not enough mentions of some of these characters' names. I had to look up a lot of them, and some of them are never even brought up in the film. Superman comes off bossy and impulsive. Yes, his heart is in the right place, but he has the same my-way-or-the-highway attitude his evil counterpart does, and he's vindicated because he's Superman. Whenever Superman disagrees with someone, it's always his call with no further discussion. He's the leader, but he runs the League like a dictatorship, and it's too close to the way the bad guys run things. He doesn't have an arc about listening to his team, or about how maybe he's closer to that I'm the most powerful so I make the laws position Ultraman is in. He just acts that way and gets away with it. Okay, so he concedes to Batman at the end about how stretched thin they are, but even Batman seems to take the movie side that he's Superman, so he's always got to be right. Batman says, we both were. 
meaning Superman was right about his moral stance, but Batman was right about the practical side. Except, regardless of their lack of manpower, they still managed to defeat this highly organized criminal organization, which seems to have conscripted every superpowered person on the planet into their ranks, with the simplest strategy imaginable, and it watches like they just win because they're the good guys and Superman came up with it. To be fair, both strategies are overly simple, and neither sounds like it should work. Lex wants to attack each crime family systematically as a group. Superman shuts him down with no argument, except, here's my plan, it's better. And it isn't. It watches like he just doesn't want to do Lex's thing because he's Lex. And I understand why Superman would be leery of Lex Luthor, for the same reason I understand if Lex doesn't fully trust the Justice League. They are, after all, on each other's worlds, each other's worst enemies. Superman's counterpart is responsible for the death of Lex's best friend. But if I were Superman, I would say, but Lex, if we go to each spot one by one and take them out, won't the Syndicate get wise and pull their forces together all at once and attack us? He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, no, let's take teams of two and attack them all at once. Teams of two? Two? Just two? Against all those superpowered forces? Well, I can't figure out just two. Batman should have been right. They shouldn't have been ready for this, and it should have been a catastrophe, which would have made Slade's argument stronger, and the ethical debate would have been more interesting. Yes, maybe you should fight for what's right instead of negotiating with psychopaths, but that doesn't mean barrel into trouble without much of a plan. That doesn't mean be grossly irresponsible. Lex should have gone and gotten the Justice League from like 50 different universes to help instead of just the one, but instead of getting completely creamed like they ought to, the League wins because they're the good guys and the script says they do. Also, in the original Batman-Superman argument, Batman seems to be taking a traditional Superman position. It seems like Batman wants to expand the League and Superman isn't having it. Why? Batman might try to veto adding anyone new to the roster because he doesn't trust anyone and it's taken him this long to trust the other League members as much as he does. And this is also the same Batman who we'll find out in the sequel has plans for how to take each other member out if they're compromised or decide to go bad. But why would Superman block that? There's no discussion about it, so I can't be sure that Superman really has a problem with League expansion at the beginning. It watches like they just haven't gotten around to it, but I don't know. If that's all it is, then the only lesson Superman really learns here, when he acts like he's had some profound change of heart, is uh, not to procrastinate? What makes Batman and Superman's argument even less compelling is that Owlman's ideology is so much more interesting than that stuff, and I just want to focus more on it. He's Batman if Batman was so cynical after the death of his parents, or whatever tragedy happened to Owlman, that he hasn't just lost his trust in people, he's become an extreme nihilist. And I love that the O on his chest is a double entendre. It stands for Owlman, but it also stands for his belief in nothing. Zero sum. He doesn't think anything anyone does really matters. He has such a cold, emotionless attitude, like a consciousless Vulcan, that he seems to feel this way even before he discovers there are other Earths, just helping the Syndicate maintain power because he likes to feel in control and he has nothing better to do. Again, I'm speculating about that. His motivations before he builds up the bust-up-the-multiverse machine are vague, like so much character stuff in this movie, but that assumption tracks with his actions. He tells Superwoman that he wants to wipe out the whole multiverse because it's the only choice that would really matter. He doesn't believe in free will because the many worlds theory turns out to be true. 
For every action a person makes, a new universe is born where that person made a different choice. Thus, to Alman, nothing anyone does matters because there's a version of you that has made every possible choice there is. It's the same reason some Star Trek fans thought the Next Generation episode parallels broke Star Trek. There, Worf jumps from dimension to dimension, each one seeming to exist because of a different choice he might have made but didn't. The argument against doing that is, why are we focused on this particular dimension then? What is special about it? Why should we continue to care about the characters in the world we've been invested in when there are infinite worlds we could be exploring, where our characters did something else? Does anything our heroes do really matter, or is it arbitrary, since everything that can happen does happen? Owlman would have hated parallels. Owlman serves as a dark mirror for Batman, and by contrast, demonstrates how good of a person Batman really is. Yes, he has trust issues. Yes, he operates through fear, kind of like the Syndicate. And yes, he's even willing to let someone else die to save a friend. But he believes in right and wrong, and that people matter. While Owlman is so completely broken, he can only see purpose in total destruction. Life isn't about individuals, it's about a logic problem. And again, I wish this idea were brought to the forefront, but with what little I know about Owlman, I think it might also be, again, about control. Whatever horrible thing that happened to make him become Owlman, probably the death of his parents, made him feel out of control. The existence of the infinite dimensions makes it even worse. He isn't unique, and nothing he does is unique. When every choice happens, to him, that means there is no choice. He needs to feel significant, if not in control, so even though an existence full of people whose decisions don't matter should be the same to him as no existence at all, where no one can do anything, so nothing matters, he has to be the one who does the one thing that's actually unique, the one thing that can't spawn more universes, because if he chooses to destroy Earth Prime, there can be no more choices. There is a certain logic to his thinking, and it's a scary notion. I can see how someone with a traumatic past, who already doesn't think anything they do makes a difference, could come to this conclusion. The stance I take, and the one the movie seems to, with Superman insisting on helping another universe regardless of whether it's in their jurisdiction, as Green Lantern argues, is that right is right no matter the consequences, including your actions spawning universes where someone does the good or bad thing you decided not to do. If I knew for sure that there was a version of me who decided to steal something I was tempted to but didn't, or to hit someone I was tempted to but resisted hitting, or gave into the pressure and gave a movie I didn't like but tons of other people loved a dishonestly positive review, obviously the worst of those three offenses, I think it would only reaffirm for me the good choices. I wouldn't want to be the guy in those other universes that did the unconscionable thing. And the fact that what I did creates a new series of outcomes for me, hopefully mostly positive ones, would tell me that my choices do matter. Because I live in the world where I'm not the thief or the assaulter or the sellout, and I can sleep better at night. Again, I don't have enough to go on, but Owlman's philosophy is so extreme, perhaps it's like Magneto in the first X-Men movie. His justification for his reprehensible actions makes some sense, but at the end of the day, maybe it's just a justification. And what he really wanted all along is to kill humans, in Magneto's case, to punish the universe for the death of his family. It might be the same thing with Owlman. So now, let's get into completely overthinking things. There is perhaps a paradox in Owlman's plot. Bear with me here. 
So every action a person takes creates a new universe where we take a different action. The only exception to this is if you destroy Earth Prime, because that sets off a chain reaction that blows up the multiverse. No multiverse, no people, no choices, no newly formed dimensions. Okay, everybody with me. But then, what stops new universes from forming based on every permeation of what you do on Earth Prime? It would be like doing something anywhere else, right? So then, wouldn't that create a new world where you did blow up Earth Prime? But then, wait, it wouldn't really be Earth Prime, so would it just not count? Would it be like that dimension never existed because it gets blown up, but then doesn't set off that chain reaction because it's not the real Earth Prime? But by the rules of the multiverse, there should be a reality where that happened, but there can't be because there's only one Earth Prime. So I guess it doesn't matter. Speaking of that, I love the ominousness of Owlman's final words when Batman sends him to an unpopulated Earth where his machine kills that dimension and him with it. It doesn't matter. I wonder why he says that, and that's an ambiguity I can get behind. Is it just his general worldview that he can die comforted by the notion that yes, he failed, but nothing anyone else does matters either, so it's no great loss? Or does he say that because he assumes someone else will someday finish what he started? Everything seems to happen in the multiverse. Maybe it doesn't matter because he expects someone like him will finally do the only thing that does matter someday. Which is loopy because it would mean he's comforted by the notion that everything happens, which kind of negates his whole premise in the first place. Again, suggesting that it's more of a justification to end humanity than a true belief. He also contradicts his premise earlier when he says he's doing this because humanity is a disease. Okay, but you're not just wiping out humanity, you're wiping out everything. And humanity is the reason the whole multiverse exists. Without it, all those choices wouldn't have created all these different realities. So if humanity is a disease, what is it affecting exactly? Nothingness? I don't know whether to read that as a mistake or an interesting contradiction from a madman who is sometimes lacking in self-awareness. I've got one more question about Alman. Why does he tell Superwoman about his plan to destroy the multiverse? She walks in on him while he's searching for Earth Prime, and she pressures him about it, but he could have lied to her. He lies to the rest of the syndicate, claiming his bomb is just for leverage against the government to negate the nuclear deterrent, and with clear evidence of what he's really doing on the computer screen. I mean, he and Superwoman are lovers, but that doesn't mean he should trust her. He doesn't trust anyone. So I take the risk. He just gets lucky that she's cool with killing everyone, including herself. And I don't understand why she's okay with that either. She's only out for power and money, but her boy toy wants to stop existence from existing, so sure, why the heck not? I fully expected her to double-cross him at the end, to expose his plot to the Syndicate or the League, and I do appreciate that that doesn't happen, because it would mean Owlman makes that stupid mistake just to set up a way to foil him. As it is, he makes that stupid mistake for no reason at all. I should mention how good setup and payoff is in this movie, particularly that scene toward the beginning, where Batman is testing a transporter beam. He pretends like he has no idea if it'll work, and he uses Flash as a guinea pig. Flash is horrified after the transport, thinking Batman doesn't care if he lives or dies. One woman says Batman's joking, and Flash isn't sure he believes her. But this is foreshadowing for that morally ambiguous move Batman makes toward the end, when he lies about Flash not being fast enough and coerces Johnny Quick to run fast enough to open the portal instead. 
leading to his rapidly aging and dying, which he knew would happen to Flash if he did it. I didn't notice that on first viewing. That is a nice, somewhat subtle setup. And before we get to my reading, let's find out what some of the folks in the Secret Superhero Screen Society have to say about this movie. Jacob Schneider, if not for the ending fight between Batman and Owlman, this movie would be completely forgettable to me. Carl Maxey, Justice League Crisis on Two Earths is one of my favorite DC animated movies. I love the crime syndicate as the rogues gallery. The dark mirror version of the heroes takes an introspective look at what could have been. The multiverse theory fascinates me, and I love when it's explored. I just wish we had learned more of the syndicate's history and how closely it matches the League. Three out of four rating for me. Brian Uhl. Crisis on Two Earths is a fun movie in a turn-your-brain-off Saturday morning cartoon kind of way. It has solid enough voice-working character models, aside from Batman, who sticks out like a sore thumb. The Crime Syndicate aren't complex villains, but they do provide what this movie requires, which is simply a big group for the Justice League to have cool fights against. 2.75 out of 4. Saqib Tariq. I remember this movie because it was initially supposed to be part of the DCAU show. I think it would have served better with that cast and continuity. It's an enjoyable watch, though. I especially love James Wood's performance. Two out of four. And S, this movie is pretty good. James Woods steals the movie. Three out of four. Thomas Edgehill. For being a repurposed script, there's just something about it that makes it great from the mafia aspect to the stunning visuals. Definitely one of my favorites. Three out of four. Chewbacca's Lover. I thought it was pretty good. Owlman's plan was pretty cool. I have a lot of issues with this movie, but compared to the other entries in the early direct-to-video line, it's certainly one of the better ones. It has one of the most original villain plots and motivations. It's some of the most exciting animated superhero action. The storyboarding is flawless, and the way the crime syndicate's world is handled is really creative and mostly pretty thoughtful. So despite my complaints about some of the ideas and character stuff not being fully drawn enough, and the awkwardness created by the DCAU script not being altered enough, I'm going to give Justice League Crisis on Two Earths a 3 out of 4. Ba, ba.